As I mentioned, we're taking a little two-week mini-series here, if you will, to really dig into the events of the resurrection and crucifixion. This mini-series will cover Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Day. Now, of course, these titles are man-made, just so you know. Uh, But we, we hear these things, and we use these titles to describe the events that took place surrounding the crucifixion, surrounding the resurrection, and all the things that happened Uh, during that week. And today is Palm Sunday. And uh, we are considering the events leading up to the cross. On Friday, I want to invite you, if you are able to come at 7 o'clock, we'll have a special Good Friday service here at 7. Um, This is going to be a shorter shorter gathering. Uh, We'll worship together. We'll sing some songs. Here's some scriptures of, of the events of the crucifixion. And Um, other scriptures as well, and there will be a shorter message. Today's message, though, is entitled, Who is this Jesus? And we're going to look at Matthew's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem just five days before he would be crucified. And this is recorded in Mark, Luke, and John as well. When you compare the texts, in all of those accounts leading up to these, this day, the triumphal entry and, and the crucifixion, you start to get a fuller picture of all that's taken place in the ministry of Jesus and the, the life of he and his disciples. In the book of John, the events that we're looking at today come on the heels of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The religious leaders are enraged at this and begin plotting how to kill both Lazarus and Jesus. In Luke, we find that at a certain point in Jesus' ministry, he set his face toward Jerusalem. There was a turning point in which the time of his death drew near, and he began to share with his followers what would happen. We actually see in Matthew chapters 16, 17, and 20 that Jesus foretells his own death and resurrection. Of course, in one of those instances, Peter says, No, May it never be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he and the disciples took a few days and they kind of withdrew from the public eye. There was the threat of violence as they caught wind that the religious leaders were looking for ways to arrest him and put him to death. But Passover was drawing near. And, of course, Jesus knew the time of his death was drawing near. And so, he returns to the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus in Bethany. Now, Passover was a time when the crowds would gather in Jerusalem. There would be massive crowds. We're talking like Super Bowl Sunday, you know, at the site of the Super Bowl. Just millions of people descending in one location. The historian Josephus wrote that the population of Jerusalem would swell to around 2 million people during the time of Passover as families from all over Israel would gather for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, normally Jerusalem was a city of about 250,000 people. So that's a very large number of people coming in. And obviously there wasn't enough space in Jerusalem proper for them all to stay. So they would stay in the towns and villages that were on the outside. So towns like Bethany, Bethpage, um, even um, probably as far away as Bethlehem. 
it's not hard to imagine that word would spread quickly when you've got people in these areas and they're all talking. Uh, you know, they didn't have the distractions that we do today. They caught word that Jesus had come for Passover. And they caught word that Jesus was heading toward Jerusalem. Now, with all the events that had taken place, especially the resurrection of Lazarus, many would have started to wonder, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been looking for who will deliver us from Rome? He's healed blinded eyes. He's unstopped deaf ears. And now he's raised a man from the dead. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He must be the long-awaited Messiah, the king who will restore this nation back to its proper place in the world. So let's read Matthew's account here. Chapter 21, it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. We're going to read verses 1 through 17. Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, first of all, for your wonderful mercy and grace that you have shown to us, your kindness. We praise you for the things that we are remembering this week, the crucifixion, the resurrection, all the terrible things that Jesus endured in the scourging and all the other things, Lord, the mocking, the humiliation, the shame, that he endured it on our behalf. Father, we just ask that you would give us fresh eyes to see this morning the amazing truths of the good news Of your son Jesus. Lord we thank you and we praise you. And in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So who is this Jesus? Why is he entering in. To Jerusalem in such a way. 
there's a lot of significance in these few verses that we've read that we can potentially miss. You know, this is a story that we've likely heard, much like the Christmas story. We've, we've heard this story over and over and over. I can remember uh, church plays that we did, you know, waving little branches and whatnot, running around waving the branches. Jesus didn't randomly decide to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. It wasn't just some happenstance, only to discover these gathered crowds holding these branches. It's like, oh, this is, this is uh, convenient. These events fulfill prophecy and point us to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And as easy as it may be for us to miss the significance, sadly, it appears that most, is, most of Israel missed the significance of these events. They missed the significance of their own actions. Jesus and the disciples leave the village of Bethany. They travel to the village of Bethpage. And yes, they are two different villages. Um, they are about a stone's throw away from each other, uh, but they, they are two distinct villages. He sends two disciples ahead of him with incredible details of how to find this donkey and its colt. So there are actually two donkeys here. There's the mother donkey and the colt. Even that shows a lot of compassion in Jesus. He takes this colt who has never had a rider, would have freaked out over these crowds and calls for its mother to be brought with the colt so that it could be led and not, not freak out. This shows some simple kindness of Jesus toward this, this animal, this beast of burden. But it happens exactly as Jesus describes it. The disciples get there. They, they find a person with this donkey and the colt. They ask permission to have it. The Lord, the master needs it. They say, okay. So all of this, in verse 4 shows us, is to fulfill the prophet Zechariah's words. In Zechariah 9.9, says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Who here loves parades? You can raise your hand. I love parades. The Bergs, the Bergs get into parades. We, we, anytime we see that one is in the area, we go to it, and mostly for the candy. Um, and I would say that's just Olive, but it's, it's also me. I can remember as a child always loving it when there was a parade and the mounted police were part of it, and they would ride by on their horses. I loved the sound of it. I loved seeing horses. As a child, horses were one of my favorite animals. Kings and generals in ancient times, when they would enter a city to conquer it, would ride in on a white horse. Or they would ride in a chariot drawn by white horses. But here Jesus rides into Jerusalem in a manner altogether different than the people might have assumed a conquering king would have ridden into. But had they known the words of the prophets, had they known what scripture laid out, they wouldn't have been so surprised. And maybe some there had an inkling of what was happening. But again, I think what we see in their actions kind of give away that they are looking for an earthly king, someone who is going to vanquish this Roman enemy. As he enters the city, the, the crowds are thinking him to be this Messiah who is coming in, he's, he's, but he's on a donkey. He's coming in humbly. He's, this is kind of bizarre. They spread their cloaks on the ground. This signifies their submission to him. And some cut down palm branches and 
should have maybe found some and brought some. Uh, but, you know, palm trees are scarce in these parts of the world. Uh, but they, they cut these palm branches down, again, symbolic of victory. The palm branch had great significance to Israel. It's the closest thing to a national flag that Israel had. In the second century BC, the temple was desecrated by a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he had actually sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. He was the leader of the Seleucid Empire. In response, a Jewish man named Mattathias determined to rescue the temple and the nation from the invasion of the Seleucids. He led a guerrilla group that fought against the Seleucids, and when he died, his son Judas Maccabeus, which means the hammer. It's a pretty cool name. My name does not mean that. Just a, just a little glimpse into uh, me. Um, my name is Hebrew. I'm not Hebrew, uh, but it, it means little puppy. <laughs> and I know that I just opened the door wide for humiliation, but I can't, wow. can't really say anything. It's my name, you know? Yeah, I discovered that in Bible college when my uh, professor was like, do you know what your name means? I'm like, well, the little card my parents gave me said it means faithful. He goes, yeah, faithful, like a little puppy that sits by your feet. (laughs) Okay. So the hammer, Judas Maccabeus, much better name, was essentially a Hebrew Robin Hood. He put so much pressure on the armies of the Seleucid Empire That in 164 BC, they released the temple back into the hands of the Hebrew people so that they could begin worship, they could could cleanse the temple, they could practice their faith. And this was met with such, you know, celebration and such uh, festive atmosphere that they instituted a new feast, the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Lights. We call it Hanukkah. Later, Judas' brother, Simon Maccabeus, would drive out the Seleucids altogether, and the people proclaimed Simon a national hero, and they celebrated him with a parade. And in that parade, the Jews celebrated his victory with music and the waving of palm branches. And at that point in Jewish history, the palm branch became a symbol of military victory, and it became their national icon. So much so, that much later, when the Jews revolted against Rome in the decade of the 60s AD, um, not 1960s, the first 60s, they dared to mint their own coins, forsaking the Roman money, and on that was the image of a palm branch. And that would have been quite a, uh, a significant gesture to, to the uh, Roman Empire. And so when the crowds gather here, And they begin waving these palm branches. It's a strong statement. They were proclaiming that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah King. And he's here to liberate them from their political oppressors. It's not random. It's not this, uh, let's go grab these. They're right here. We'll grab some of these and just wave them to have something to wave. They are proclaiming revolution. And they begin to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This is another significant detail. The word Hosanna is derived from a Hebrew, Hebrew word that literally means save now. Both this plea and the phrase blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord are found in the Hallel. 
a series of psalms that were sung every morning at the Feast of Tabernacles. We find these words in Psalm 118, 25 through 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The crowd is celebrating Jesus as the Messiah, the promised son of David, the messianic king, the anointed one, God's chosen one. The crowds have assumed to know who he is, and they are crying out for the Messiah to deliver for salvation now. But they're not seeing what they need deliverance from. They're only looking as far as their Roman oppressors. Not realizing that Jesus has come to deliver them from their greatest need. Forgiveness for their sin. Verse 10 shows that this stirs up the whole city. Now again, remember, there's two million people that have gathered upon Jerusalem. So this is quite the uproar. And in the other accounts, we see just over and over the religious leaders, their reaction to these events. They're just enraged at all of this. They're angry. But what we see in all of these details is that Jesus comes as a different kind of king. He's different than our preconceived notions. He's greeted as the son of David, the promised king, but he comes in great humility, just as the prophet Zechariah foretold. And again, his words, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he humbled and mounted on a donkey. He comes in humility and meekness. He does come to conquer. He is declaring himself king, but in a manner altogether different than we assume. He comes to suffer. He comes to conquer through his death and resurrection. The salvation he brings is from their sin. Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant. Now we're familiar with the words of Isaiah 53. Uh, We will read some of those words on Friday. The last few verses say this in verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He's a servant And he suffered in our place. Jesus enters the city not to conquer as one of the great ones of the world. But to die as the savior of sinners. In in humiliation and shame. Openly as a spectacle. He will die for the sins of the people as a savior marked by the most gracious kindness. Humility, love, and gentleness. He is precisely the kind of king that you and I need. In verses 12 through 17, we see Jesus enter the temple. Now, this is another aspect of this whole uh, narrative where we can easily miss the significance of all that's taking place. 
This passage can often be used in ways to just kind of justify our own rage at things. And certainly there's a time for anger. It's not what I'm saying. But we sometimes just look at this and go, yeah, Jesus got mad. I can get mad. I think we miss what his anger is directed at and how he was angry. What was the purpose of his anger? So let's unpack this. Some break down this whole passage to show Jesus as king, priest, and prophet. In the triumphal entry, we see Jesus as king. Here in the temple, we see him as both priest and prophet. This can be helpful, but again, we need to see him as a different kind of king, a different kind of priest, and a different kind of prophet. We have been seeing in our series on the letter to the Hebrews that Jesus is the greater high priest, that his work was altogether different than the priesthood of Israel, the Levitical priesthood. He was a different kind of priest. And as part of his priestly ministry, he is angered by what has happened to the temple. And it has become all about practicality. It's become all about making money. But I think also what is here is that he is stirred up to anger by what these leaders have done to God's people. The religious leaders over time have turned this into a system of rules and rituals imposing heavy burdens upon God's people. Now the temple had a currency of its own of its own and that's why there were money changers and that went all the way back to the days of Solomon's temple. However, what we're seeing is by this time the money changers were taking advantage of the people. The religious leaders uh, over time have turned all of this into um, kind of a market, if you will, the courts of the temple. There were places to buy animals for sacrifices because, you know, people would be traveling a long way. And maybe that started out as a convenient thing. You know, you could if you didn't have a lamb of your own, you could buy one. But again, it's become a place of robbing the people. So rather than the courts being full of the worship of God, the temple courts now are filled with the things that people need in order to worship God. It's kind of like we talk about the fence laws. Israel surrounded the law that God had given them in the Old Covenant with all sorts of extra laws to keep them from violating the ones that God had given. And we tend to do the same thing, too. We, we tend to add things uh, to grace to kind of protect grace, in a way. In the temple, they had added all these things to make things convenient, to, to maybe help things, but in the end, it just created an unfathomable burden on the people who are already being oppressed. So Jesus comes in and he's angry. And he flips the tables over of those who have corrupted and added to the worship of God. The result here, I think, tells us even more of who Jesus is. Because it doesn't just end with the tables being turned over. Verses 14 and 15. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So two things immediately happen after Jesus cleanses the temple. First, the needy came, men and women who were lame, 
who were sick. They came to Jesus and they were healed. Second, children began to sing praises to God. So we've seen how Jesus as king comes in humility and meekness. Here again, though we see strength and authority, he turns over the tables, he cleanses the temple as part of his priestly work. He's a different kind of priest. One who would offer himself up for the people. But also we see some difference here in how he treated the people. He worked in great humility and he drew people to himself. Whereas the priesthood of that day built all sorts of barriers and and hard rules for the people. He draws people to himself. Where the religious, religious leaders added burden to the backs of people, Jesus lifts burdens. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls to all who have had the heavy burden of the law and religious works and self-effort. He calls them to himself, offering the rest that only he can give. He invites the sinner to himself and describes his own heart as gentle and lowly. Matthew also writes this about Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew twelve eighteen through 21. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Matthew says this to show that Jesus would not be a dominator. He's not adding religious burden to people's lives that would crush them under the weight of it. He wouldn't lift up his voice in the streets. He wouldn't rally against people or rail against people. He would come to bruised reeds and instead of breaking them, he would heal them. He would come to smoldering wicks. Instead of blowing them out, he would breathe fresh life into their lungs. He displays his authority and his strength in cleansing the the temple, overturning the tables. But again, it's done in order to bring healing to the needy and the lame and blessing to the children. Let's read what the priests and scribes say and how Jesus responds in verse 16. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So the religious leaders are indignant over needy men and women being healed. And what the children are saying. So Jesus is saying, yes, I hear it. I hear what they're saying. I see what's happening. And you should know it too. It shouldn't be a surprise to you. You should know what it is that God desires. And so as a different kind of prophet, his words unmask the religious hypocrisy of these leaders. The religious leadership, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees had misunderstood the scriptures. They had made it all about the actions of the old covenant. They've made it all about their activity, their duty, and their obligations, and yes, their position as well. They've condemned and demanded more and more and more. But Jesus says to them 
In Matthew 12, 6 and 7, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Speaking of himself. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus comes in kingly power, full of humility and gentleness. And he came to bring mercy and he would become the sacrifice. You and I are the broken reeds and the smoldering wicks. We're the needy, the lame, and the poor. We're the broken. But now, Jesus has come. And he's delivered. And he's healed. And he's brought mercy and grace to us. And though these events took place before the crucifixion, this was leading to that moment. Though we are now new, we've got new hearts, we're new creation, we can look back to that moment in our life when we too were the broken, the needy, the lame, the poor. But Jesus has come to us. So how do we confuse Jesus today? Well, I think there's any number of ways that we can confuse Jesus today. The prosperity gospel proclaims a Jesus who comes to give you everything you ever wanted and more. That God might exist simply to give you wealth and health. Now, there's nothing wrong with health and there's nothing wrong with wealth. But this message that is preached is often used to um, say that you have power that only God would have. And so essentially you become kind of like a little God. And you can order God around. He kind of becomes a drive through worker at McDonald's, if you will. And you kind of command things to be. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie to be rejected. We might also confuse him for a political Messiah, much like the Jews looked for in the passage that we've looked at. We might conflate political ideals and morals as the message of the gospel. Yet too often what this does is prioritize comfort and power now over the future hope of the reign of Christ. We do have a future hope that one day Christ will return, establish his kingdom, and every wrong will be righted as he reigns. It's in the kingdom age to come. But for now in this present age, the hope is not in a president, it's not in a system or political change, but in the good news which has the power to save sinners and transform lives. So the goal, if you will, of the gospel is not political success. It's restored relationship with the Father. It's, it's that relationship between God and man that Jesus came to redeem and bring back to wholeness. And then we take that and we offer it to others that they might also taste of the goodness of God and be with him for all eternity. Now, it's good to desire a better society. It's good to live in such a way that we can improve the conditions around us. But let us ultimately look for the better country that we've been promised, the hope of eternity, whose builder and maker is God. We also might confuse Jesus as a moral teacher telling us to live a better life and so somehow make ourselves okay with God. However, Jesus showed the full extent of the law, proving that we could not do enough to ever make ourselves okay with God. 
But the good news is that Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. By living a perfect life and bearing God's wrath on the cross, he has secured the salvation of all of those who would believe. And there's obviously other ways that we can confuse the Jesus that we see here in the scriptures. We can confuse the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. But let's focus on the true thing, the real thing, what he has done. He has indeed conquered as king. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he has conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he offers salvation and life. So believe that good news. He is now seated on the throne. He is glorious, magnificent, full of power and might. Yet he is approachable and full of grace. And he beckons us to come. He has revealed himself to be merciful and kind. And he pursues, he rescues, he saves and he heals the needy and fills our mouths with praise. And so we can come like the little children we see here. With praise on our lips. We can draw near. Let's remember the words of Hebrews as we close. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ that he didn't come just to set up Israel as uh, a new power in the world of some sort. But he came to conquer sin and death. And that he was victorious over sin and death in the grave. As we'll see next Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. He rose victorious and in power. We thank you that our sin was dealt with at the cross. In fullness. And now there remains nothing in between you and your people. The veil has been ripped in two, and we can boldly come before you as your sons and daughters with hope, with confidence, knowing that we're coming to our Father and not our judge. We praise you, Father. You alone deserve all of our praise. And we love you because you first loved us. We thank you for all the wonderful things that Jesus has done. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.